I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. It's that time of year again when we analyze the developments and forces that have been shaping commercial real estate as it stands today, assess perspectives from around the world, and consider the industry's future. On this episode, a deep dive into CBRE's annual mid-year outlook, which is hot off the presses this week, with two leaders of the worldwide team that created this impressive report. The mid-year outlook is a permanent fixture at CBRE Research, and the reason is because the world is a rapidly changing place, and we want our predictions to keep pace with that. That's Julie Whalen, CBRE's global head of occupier research, who returns to the show from Boston. I think recovery is a lot stronger than what we originally thought in the beginning of the year. And that's Henry Chin, CBRE's global head of investor research. Henry joins us from across the Pacific in Taiwan's capital city, Taipei. The report that inspires our conversation is filled with insights and trends across sectors and asset classes and framed by the historic events of our times. In other words, there's a lot to talk about. So let's get right down to it. Coming up, CBRE's 2021 Global Mid-Year Market Outlook. That's right now on The Weekly Take. Welcome to The Weekly Take. Julie, before we get into the nuts and bolts of our 2021 mid-year report, I think some of our listeners would like to know what went into making this report. Why don't you give us a little behind the scenes? Absolutely, Spencer. So a lot goes into making this report, and we have a lot of professionals around the globe that help provide us with the input to create what we have in the market today. And I would say the mid-year outlook is a permanent fixture at CBRE Research, and the reason is because the world is a rapidly changing place, and we want our predictions to keep pace with that. And so what our mid-year outlook does is gives us a chance to give our readers a combined global point of view aligned with where our predictions are going. Now, the way that we do it is we have a team of researchers who are entrenched in their markets and they're entrenched with our CBRE professionals and our clients. And they are the engines and the heroes behind the outlook. And I would say the most difficult part of this is distilling all of their great insights into a piece that readers can digest quickly and easily and use it to make actionable decisions. But we hope that we have done that. Well, Henry, uh, what's your perspective? Uh, Are we basically uh, on track uh, with our predictions from where we were at the beginning of the year? Definitely. I think all our forecasts are pretty much aligned with what we are seeing across the markets. But when I was looking at the more quant numbers, looking at investment volumes, looking at leasing volumes, I have to say US, Asia Pacific, both the leasing side and the transaction volume side, we're all upgrading our forecast. So clearly, clearly, I think recovery is a lot stronger than what we originally thought in the beginning of the year. But I have to say, when I was looking at the news, looking at the pictures, and when I was seeing the Americans, Europeans are starting having the holidays during the summer vacations, that definitely gives us some extra boost of confidence. The market is going to track back. And of course, the Delta variance is a big uncertainty for us right now. Let's talk about where we are from an occupier perspective. I think leasing is a little bit behind where we thought it would be at this stage of the year. We're not seeing as much long-term leasing, though short-term leasing and flex space seems to be doing quite well. What do you think, Julie? The number one challenge that our tenants, that our clients have been up against is 
not having strong occupancy in their office space. What that has led to is an inability for them to make long-term real estate decisions, which is why we have seen activity, but that activity has really been made up largely of renewals. It has been made up of short-term renewals and flex space, um, which you just had a podcast last week about industrious has actually come back stronger than ever. And what we would be hoping is that at the second half of 2021, we would start to see a more enhanced office occupancy, which would lead to longer term real estate decisions being made in the form of larger leases for longer term. Now with this Delta variant, we have a lot of occupiers who have most recently in the last couple of days made very public announcements saying that they are going to delay their return to office for their employees and those that are returning to the office in many cases need to remain mask wearing and remain socially distanced, which is going to make people not want to come into the office because they're not going to get the experience that they want. And so what this is going to do is further delay long-term leasing decisions because tenants just cannot understand what they're going to need in the long-term given the fact that they don't have observable trends today. But we do believe that transaction activity is picking up. We see it in the numbers, we see it in the sentiment, and we see it in tenants touring the market. And that's all positive at the end of the day. Henry, what are the facts you're seeing on the ground, not just in terms of occupancy, but to Julie's point, are we seeing more long-term leases in Asia? Yes, I think life seems to be very much back to normal in most of the Asia economies. And I think most of our staff across Asia are back to the offices. Given the recent Delta variant, and that some governments are actually putting restrictions on how many people you can be in the office. If you take that restriction away, I think pretty much 90% of the people are back to the offices on a daily basis. In terms of the leases, when we were talking to our regional occupiers, it's fascinating particularly compared to the sentiment from last year. More than 50% of our occupiers across Asia Pacific are thinking about expanding their portfolios over the next two to three years. But there are drastic differences between the multinationals, like Western companies versus Asian companies. I think the Asian companies, more than 66% of them say they want to expand in a bigger way. But because our leases tend to be relatively short, three years, we haven't seen much of a changes in terms of the length of the lease. So let's pause there and let's rewind the tape for a second there. You're suggesting to me that the average lease for an office tenant in Asia is about three years? Yes, that's only for three years. So it's quite quick to renew. Australia is the other one. Australia's tend to be five to 10 years. So we do see most of Australia major tenants, they are looking for flex options, uh, flexible leases, as well as uh, flexible spaces. I think this is something which is very, very different, Asia versus the Pacific. Well, I'll tell you what, if I had a three-year lease, I would consider that pretty flexible as an American. I think this is a critical point for our listeners because a lot of our listeners are in the capital markets business and they hear the rise of flex space, the rise of shorter term leases, and they get concerned about value. They get to say, well, if there's shorter term leases, my building value is going to um, evaporate. But you're not seeing that in Asia at all. As a matter of fact, you're seeing values go up, cap rates compress, isn't that correct? That's correct. The beauty of uh, short term leases, your renewal leases, is going to be really reflect to the market conditions. 
if your market is on the rise recovery mode, actually it's more favorable for the investors. But as of now, I think clearly the market condition is very favorable to the tenant side. Right, but we do expecting once the COVID is gone, we see kind of some markets moving to the positive momentum. It's going to change the dynamics very soon. So your asset value could increase over the next two to three years. I think the two lessons we're learning here, are, among others from Asia, is uh, number one that uh, short-term leases can work, and number two, capital values can be maintained and maybe enhanced over the long term. Um, I wrote a piece earlier today that uh, flex space and long-term leases aren't competitors. They're actually teammates now moving forward because of the want and the need for hybrid, but also it's not an enemy of the capital markets either. Julie, what's your perspective? So I absolutely agree. We have been very bullish writing about the flexible office space for quite some time now. And I think that the best thing that could have happened for that subsector of space is to see the absolutely challenging environment that they've just gone through for the last 15 months. And reason being is that there were a lot of skeptics of flexible office space in the form of a lot of capital markets participants um, that said, well, this is all well and fine during an up cycle, but when we do reach a place of a recession, it's going to fold and it's going to be a problem. And I think that what we have seen is the absolute opposite. We have seen very small amount of pullback from flexible office providers in the markets. And we have seen a extreme bounce back in this recovery timeframe. And so to me, what that has created is, as Henry says, yes, shorter term leases allow for you to keep up with the market conditions as they roll in a much more real-time basis. But also when you think about the hedging that flexible office space can provide you, where you're actually able to rebound much more quickly for a portion of your office space, because we all know that typical traditional longer term leases and the late lease activity actually lags the economic recovery by a number of quarters. And so being able to have flexible office space in your building and hedge that a little bit could actually be a positive in the long term. And we do see that more large occupiers are coming to the table wanting to have both long-term leases and short-term space agreements in the same building so that they can build a flexible portfolio while still having equity in terms of the experience that their staff has in the building. Henry, uh, back to you on this one. Let me just ask you a very specific question. Where are cap rates today versus where they were pre-COVID? Actually, we were expecting to see the cap rate move out in those CBD prime locations across Asia Pacific major markets. But actually, the cap rate just trading as low as pre-COVID situation in some markets, even compressed further, particularly just an example of Korea. But we do feel like within Asia Pacific, some markets, office sectors, it does provide a nice counter cyclical opportunity such as Shanghai, such as Sydney, but not because investors don't want to put money into those two markets. It's largely because of imbalance of demand and the supply. And we are seeing more and more investors are tuning back to the office market. It's simply because office is here to stay. Return to work is irrelevant for most part of Asia. And we are seeing the rent is creeping up. So the cap rate will probably stay lower for longer, potentially even compress it further for those major hops. Okay, Julie. Now, I was just listening to Henry's answer there. He's saying that Asia is back to normal. 
and cap rates are now down at or below where they were pre-COVID. People are back in the office. Julie, I've been reading your research now for over a year on this, and we're talking about a significant fall off in demand. Doesn't the Asian situation give a good counterpoint to what our own models are suggesting in the United States? Well, I think that this is a place where markets do differ. So I think that the lessons that we're learning in Asia Pacific, in some cases, we can apply to the U.S. And in other cases, I don't think that we can. I think that from a demand perspective, from an office standpoint, it's a very different story in the U.S. than it is in some of the Asia Pacific markets. We might be more similar to the Pacific than we are to Asia, simply because of the culture around the office and being face-to-face and engaging in work at a physical workplace. Whereas here in the United States, I think that the pendulum is swinging a little bit further to a hybrid environment where people are going to share their time between the physical office and other places. Our best estimates is that that is going to equate to a 24% reduction of your time spent in the office for the average person. And so a lot of people jump to the conclusion that says, well, does that mean then 24% less demand for space? And our resounding answer is no, it is not a one-to-one ratio, simply because we have to solve for peak office demand. There's not going to be equal demand and occupancy in offices Monday through Friday, so we have to plan for that peak level. And also, we want to design a different type of office space to meet the new type of worker that actually needs more space in some cases for collaboration zones and things like that. So our best guess is that we are probably going to have around a 9% space reduction per new worker added to the market. But we're also in a hot economic environment, and all the job growth that's going to be added is going to equate to more office demand. And so our best guess is that in 2025, when we reach that full recovery that we hope we're going to see in the office market, that we are going to be back to the same occupancy levels in real estate that we were pre-pandemic. You know, the average household sizes in Asia Pacific in Hong Kong, it's a per capita per person, so 160 square footage is a tiny 160 so virtually impossible to be able to work from home when i was talking to some occupiers in china it's a multinational american one last year they want to bring people back to the office and they said okay i pay for your taxi fares i pick for your breakfast i offer free lunch so incentivize people to go back to the offices and 12 months after i was talking to the same group of people i said by the way guys are you still having free lunch free taxis they said, no, the company has taken that away from them. And so that just tells you that the sentiment, that the phase as a return to work is very, very different. Well, there's an expression in America. There's no such thing as a free lunch. <laughs> so let's now talk a little bit deeper about the media report, because if you dig into it, and I think part of the new office demand is not just based upon job growth. It's not just based upon the fact that we may have overestimated work from home. It's based upon new industries, most notably life sciences. Uh, Henry, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? I think the life sciences is a buzzword. And because of COVID, because of a vaccination adoption rates, because of a shortage of vaccines globally, a lot of government is seeing life sciences as such a strategic industry. And so they want to develop more. 
in our minds, our life sciences actually have a four different type of real estate. Number one is the corporate offices, and then followed by R and D labs and the logistics, and then talking about manufacturing facilities. And you can see, just I give you the Asian numbers. Last year, overall leasing volume for offices was actually down by twenty five percent. However, the life sciences the take up was increased by seventeen percent. This become one of the major drivers to underpin the office demand. When I compare the different regions, I think the U.S. is clearly leading ahead. I think in Asia, we are only a third of the America's R and D lab facilities, and also for cold storage expense. If we want to catch up the cold storage facilities. Like the level in Asia, we need to build additional four hundred and ten million cubic meters of spaces. So that just tells you that life sciences is on the expansionary mode. It's not only for offices; it's pretty much across all the different type of real estate. Life sciences has certainly been one of the bright spots of the pandemic. I would say that here in the U.S., we track venture capital funding very closely when it comes to life sciences because. Venture capital funding and life sciences employment growth、uh, are hand in hand. Employment growth usually lags that VC funding by about twelve months. And so, when you look at the VC funding that is coming into the market right now, it's at its highest levels ever. And so, we can only assume that that employment growth and therefore that lab space demand is going to really continue to increase. And where is it going to continue to increase? Well, I'm sitting here in Boston, Massachusetts, which has some of the best academic institutions and healthcare institutions around, and that's where these life sciences companies want to cluster and they want to grow because they get the talent that they need and the access to the innovation that they need through the interactions that they're all having in that ecosystem. And so, these are the markets that we really believe are are growing. Markets like Boston, San Diego, San Francisco, some of the Mid Atlantic region,、um, even in. You know, Europe. There are some clusters forming in UK and Germany and France, and a lot of those biotech markets have funding that originates here in the U.S. from the companies that are in them, but they nonetheless are, are growing. So this is really a global equation,、um, and there are other industries that are, you know, certainly growing. We have tech, and our tech talent report just came out, and tech talent has grown, you know, from their employment base. When we look at some of the large Deals that have been done in the market, they are tech deals, and so we are still very bullish on the driver of tech firms、um, around leasing activity in the future. Real estate is still a very local equation, and understanding what industries are in each market and where their demand for space is coming from、um, is really an important thing to remember and to understand.、Um, we talked a little bit about the operational real estate, life sciences. We could talk about data centers. We could talk about cold storage. We know the hot asset classes, but industrial、uh, seems to be the gift that keeps on giving globally. What's your point of view on industrial, Henry? Well, I always have a very contrarian view in the industrial. Everyone loves industrial logistics because it's a buzzword as well. However, if I own the portfolios for a number of years. And probably at this point of time, I'm going to sell. I'm going to pocket the cash and realize the returns. The reason I'm saying that is there's a three mega trend coming from the occupiers. 
I think the Occupy is thinking about they want to diversify their source of the products, they want to close to the consumers, and they also want to improve the efficiencies. When I was looking at the margins from those 3PL's companies, I have noticed those 3PL companies' the margin is so low, and then therefore they won't be able to pay the endless higher rent on the year-on-year -year basis. We got the supply is kicking into most of the market. So therefore, I do thinking about the logistic rent probably is going to grow at a slower paces going forward. When we are talking to lots of occupiers, funny enough, particularly in Asia Pacific, cost escalation has been one of the major hurdles for them to expand their portfolios. And when I was talking to the other side, to the investors, investors start showing some concerns of the entry cap because the entry cap is pretty low, it's quite unrealistic to underwrite the further cap rate compressions. Logistics will continue to perform well, but only for two types of the assets. Supply chain cost, 50% of transportation related cost. So this is something is worth watching out. But for investors now, you really should look into build to suit. And then because the tailor-made logistics is what the occupiers are looking for. Everyone thinking about supply chain is no longer the issue, but I really want to highlight here, supply chain still going to be a challenge for lots of occupiers. If you look at the flooding in Germany, flooding in China, we might not have an iPhone delivered on time this time. And we also see the Delta variant in parts of Southeast Asia and they all potentially it's going to be a challenge for that spaces. Well, we're here talking about the 2021 mid-year outlook. And while we're talking about the mid-year outlook and on industrial, I want to get into one other aspect of it, which is manufacturing. And Henry, what we're hearing a lot of here in the United States is what they're calling a plus one strategy, which is China is still going to be the manufacturing engine of the world. Uh, for the indefinite future, but a plus one. Uh, what are you seeing about that in Asia? Yeah, definitely. China plus one is quite prevail and quite evident in this part of the world. However, every nation are fighting for what a plus one means. And the plus one in our terms is a VIP. And the V is Vietnam, I is Indonesia, and P is the Philippines. So those three nations in Southeast Asia are competing on the VIP spaces. And increasingly, increasingly, we are seeing India's popping up. I think India's enhancing their supply chain uh, network, enhancing their manufacturing capacities, particularly related to life sciences as well. So therefore, I think India's on the rise. So definitely China plus one is super important, even for us in Taiwan. Semiconductor, you know, you need chips, and all the chips, the majority of chips are producing in Taiwan. So we are also fighting the plus one here. Well, Henry, since you brought up the VIP, I have to counter with the Big Mac, Mexico, America, and Canada. And the reason why I'm going to counter with the Big Mac is because there are more people now talking about the world becoming more regionalized in the future because supply chains broke down. Uh, we didn't see the ability to bring in goods from China, the VIPs or otherwise, and maybe we will see more manufacturing coming back to the Big Mac, uh, Mexico, America, and Canada. Uh, Julie, do you have a point of view on that? 
I think that supply chain disruption has certainly been an issue, right? We've had challenges with labor issues. There's been increased energy costs. There's been extreme weather patterns that are only going to continue as climate change. We still get, try to get under control. When you look at what happened with the blockage of the Suez Canal, there has just been a lot of different factors at play that is creating, again, where I would also tend to be on Spencer's side on the argument of industrial, where we are going to have demand that also comes just from the need of an increase of safety, safety stock um, that needs to be held onshore in a lot of countries that will add a lot of demand for industrial and key real estate hubs. And so here in North America and in South America, no doubt that regionalization is going to become really important so that we can help mitigate and combat all of these challenges, especially as e-commerce rises and we uh, have more of a need for distribution around uh, North America. So yeah, I completely agree with that. Let's talk now about hotels. We didn't talk much about it, uh, but Henry, I want to go back to something you taught me uh, maybe three, four months ago that we're not just seeing um, pent up demand, we're seeing revenge retail. I think we're seeing revenge holidays now. People want to get out and spend money on hotels, and they seem to be making a rapid comeback, certainly the drive-to staycation hotels. What are you seeing in Asia? I am so jealous of seeing you and Julia flying around to your summer holidays. We can't have a summer holidays here. It's simply because our borders are still largely closed. But nevertheless, investors are actually coming back to look at the hotels. And if you ask any people across Asia Pacific, the number one destination people want to be after pandemic is Japan. As a result, more and more investors are looking at the hotel spaces, the tourist hotel spaces uh, in Japan, in addition to some locations in Southeast Asia, Thailand, Indonesia, those beach results is definitely getting a lot more traction from the investors. Hotel operators are expanding the revenge tourism and the hotels having a strong challenges last year. But now more and more people are holding more positive views into the hotel sector. Let's now talk about some other macro issues here for just a moment. Uh, inflation, interest rates. What are some of the other macro factors that you think are risks uh, for our mid-year forecast for the end of 21 and moving into 22, Henry? I think the one thing we haven't seen much of the macro factors is the government's willingness to support the economy recovery stories in some part of the world. I think 2020, we navigate through quite okay. Is it largely because of all the government stepping up to provide the physical support? And um, the Delta variant caught us by surprise. So we are going to watch quite closely about the physical support from the government to support the unemployment, to support the economy growth engine. The one thing I think we haven't talking a lot is a lot of geopolitical tension will continue. And uh, this is very hard to forecast. Initially, I thought after the presidential election in the US, we probably won't see much of the, the conflict between East and West. But it looked like the geopolitical disagreements, tension is going to lingering around for quite some time. And uh, this is something we need to watch out for. And the final part is more related to U.S. I think I was watching very closely with your government bond yield in the U.S. It was 1.6% and then now down to 1.2%. So clearly people does have a concern about the pace 
of the recovery. So something we need to be mindful. Julie, let's come back to you now. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about your outlook, uh, not just for this year, but for the next couple of years, uh, particularly with this labor shortage. Uh, with a labor shortage, uh, doesn't that mean we are going to be even more concentrated in the major markets where labor is plentiful? Or do you think this trend that we've been seeing about people moving to some of the smaller, as I call them, new kids on the block, the Denver's, the Raleigh's, the Columbus, Ohio's, do you think that's going to continue or do you think that's going to revert? I think that what we have seen in terms of migration trends is very akin to what we saw before the pandemic. It just accelerated a little bit. And so the question is, will those trends continue to accelerate or will they moderate back to a place where they were? Um, I don't think that any of us believe that these trends are going to throw off any of the major markets like the primary gateway markets of New York and San Francisco and even Boston. Um, but I think that a greater market share of talent is going to continue to flow into these secondary markets. Now, I took a look at the America's Investor Intention Survey before I came here, and I know that a lot of the large investors are actually preferring secondary markets today over primary markets in terms of their investment aspirations. And so I think that speaks a lot to where the demographic trends are going also, because Office is very durable in those markets right now because there's a lot of business growth supported by demographics and talent that are going to those markets. That does not mean, I don't think, that that's going to be at the expense of primary gateway markets. There just might be easier money to be had in those secondary markets. ESG, uh, environmental, social governance, it has exploded in its importance in commercial real estate, uh, led by Europe, but I know Asia is also well ahead of the United States. What are you seeing there for investor preferences? In ESG. Henry? Well, ESG is a definitely a buzzword. I think the most challenging part is the investment communities in the past is all looking at the numbers and the returns. But given the current you know, climate changes, what we're seeing in Germany, in China last week, I think more and more government paying extra attention to the ESG, particularly on, on the E front. And then you can see in Japan, by 2050, we have a net zero uh, carbon emission target. And China is going to 2045. And uh, even in Singapore, they want to raise the building for five meters above the sea levels going forward. So ESG is a really important element in this part of the world. I think most of the investors are talking about energy savings, waste management, and the water management as well. Increasingly, we are seeing more and more developers are looking at the green leases. So green leases is going to be so important going forward. So ESG, we are just in the initial stages. We are looking at what European has been doing. So they will give us a great examples to speed out the process in Asia Pacific. Julie, uh, what does the office world look like two or three years from now uh, versus today? So two or three years from now, I believe that the office world is going to be in the height of transformation. So I think that there are a lot of lease expirations that are going to be coming due in 2023 timeframe as a result of the normal expiration cycle, plus all of the short-term renewals that have been done in the last year. And that's going to be the opportunity for tenants to really take a bite at the apple and make some serious transformational decisions about their portfolios. 
And so I think that in that time frame is when all of this thinking and speculation that we're putting to the future of office is really going to start to shine through. Um, and we're really going to be able to see the realities of what that means for our office market. Right. Henry, same question to you. Two, three years from now, what are we looking at in terms of commercial real estate in Asia versus today? I think in Asia, I do believe the structural changes will continue. We've been talking about life sciences, cold storages, e-commerce drivers opportunity will continue to go forward. But I think two, three years time, you are thinking about what we should have done in 2021. Is it, is it I probably should put more money into the offices. I probably should have put more money into the retail because that was a so good investment. I do believe that the traditional office retail as an asset classes is a good counter-cyclical play if we're thinking about you know holding for the longer term. So, so that's my thought. Awesome. Well, I'm, Julie, I was going to ask you, uh, that was your last question, but because Henry went out on a limb, he said, buy office and retail. I'm going to say buy multifamily. I believe that is the best investment class for the next several years, certainly in America, because of the shortage of housing. What is your best investment advice for the next two to three years? Best investment advice for the next two to three years is I would say buy secondary office, buy secondary office market. And on behalf of the Weekly Take, I want to thank two of my very close colleagues, good friends, Julie Whalen. The global head of Occupier Research. Julie, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Spencer. And my good friend, Henry Chin, who I've been working with now since 2014. You rocked the house then. You rocked the house today, Henry. Henry, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Spence. Thanks to Julie and Henry, as well as to the global research team at CBRE for the substantial work that we just discussed. And thank you for tuning in. If you'd like to read the complete 2021 Global Mid-Year Market Outlook, you can download the report at cbre.com slash global outlook. And if you'd like to find out more about our guests or our show, check out our website, cbre.com slash the weekly take. The outlook for our podcast, of course, is terrific. We're already at work on some fascinating new episodes, including conversations on hybrid work, innovation in the solar power industry, and more economic thought leadership and analysis. So come on back for insights on those topics. In the meantime, share the show and please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. Thanks again for joining us. I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well.